Welcome to Biteside. I am not sure if I'm meant to say welcome back to Biteside or if I should just say welcome to Biteside because it's been 10 years and it's a very different beast this time around compared to last time. Um, so let's just jump straight into the idea that I'm sitting here. I'm Seamus Byrne. Uh, you may remember me from such things as Biteside. <laughs> <laughs> and I have Nick Healy with me. Good, good afternoon. Hello, I can't Jamie. just leave you weirdly giggling into the background. No, there. I do. I do apologise. I just can't <laughs> believe it's also been ten years since Bite Side. Yeah, I, I literally got a Facebook memory uh, last month after uh, that was uh, a reminder that it had been exactly ten years since the first time we did. Yeah, what then was this crazy idea of trying to do um, a live event in a pub, recorded with cameras recording each other on microphones, and we kind of thought about making it a podcast, but actually, because we wanted to make it a video thing, uh, we had to pay for all our own hosting because back then, and this is the weirdest bit, right? YouTube, at that point, still only let you upload videos that were five minutes no, no longer than that. I, I, I'm stunned to remember that that was ever a time period. Like that's actually <laughs> shocking me to be recalling that. Yeah, and and so it did. It meant we had to host our own videos, uh, which meant we had to pay for extra hosting, and we had to like do all the encoding. I think we uploaded videos at 10:24 by something something something. Um, all that jazz, but. Uh, it meant that, yeah, it, it wasn't technically a podcast. It was not available on the iTunes podcast store back then. So this is a first time that Biteside is a podcast. Uh, I've been doing a bunch of other podcasts over the past year. Uh, you can still find those. I'll throw some promos around later. Um, but, yeah, it just seemed like the right time to get on with having a good chatty show where we talk about cool fun things that cross our radar on a regular basis uh and yeah i I couldn't think of someone better to do it with than nick healy who now lives in radio land and not across the desk from me at cnet like once upon a time Uh, not only just in radio land not even in the same city as you anymore i'm calling from the wilds of dubbo and, you know, it, it could have been wilder than that, couldn't it? It could have been wilder. I have just moved to Dubbo after, uh, I'm not going to say escaping because I actually do miss it weirdly, uh, but Caratha right up in the northwest of WA, uh, the joy of regional radio. Look, I can only imagine that that would have been a really, really cool time. Um, yeah, I, I wish I'd sort of found an excuse to to visit while you're up there because, um, yeah, the, that north coast of WA just seems like a crazily beautiful part of the country that none of us really get to spend time in. It's absolutely stunning, and I've got to admit, some of it just felt like a midlife crisis. I took up uh, paddle boarding and boxing again and did all these <laughs> things, and I'm like, well, this is actually a great lifestyle. Uh, but it was a long way away from anywhere. And yet, look, so... Bite side as a concept. I thought it's first episode. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I was thinking the other day, it's like, oh, maybe we call it an episode zero because <laughs> we're really just testing things out and making sure everything works properly. And I'm like, yeah, I've, it's episode one. We might as well just call just it. Just call that. it episode one. It's just yep. on. 
And the whole idea, though, was always the fact that here in Australia, the tech and the games journal communities all get along so well. And, you know, I think the same idea applies now, where back then we used to have such cool conversations behind the scenes because we all love this stuff too. Um, and, yeah, we just sort of thought, wouldn't it be great to start capturing that and sharing it with it, with the communities that we're all a part of and all our audiences? Um, and I think for me that's kind of a, a really nice idea for this show as well is that on a regular basis, um, you know, I feel like it will be as – it will be as weekly as possible based on our various schedules. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, just giving us that chance to just talk in a more casual way in the way that a lot of um, my other podcasts try to be a bit more focused about things. Yeah, I feel like that this show is just that good space to have a good chat and flag cool stuff that is, uh, you know, yeah, just the things that jump out each week that you're like, I want to just dig in and have a bit of a more, bit more of a chat about that, that thing, because it, it won't get out of my brain. Now, look, I'm excited to do it too, because I don't talk about this sort of stuff professionally anymore. The, I am, I'm back in the, the role of rank aperture and uh, amateur rather an enthusiast. And it's just fun to be able to, well, take a break from interviewing people about water and drought and uh, <laughs> pretty much everything else that occupies my time at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, right, like that's literally as important as it gets in Australia right now, particularly there in Dubbo. I can't even, you know, it's it's hard to, my dad lived out in Dubbo for a while. Um, and so I, you know, have some fond memories of visiting out there um, on a fairly regular basis over the course of about two years. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to express just how tough things are when it comes to the water situation. Look, it is really tough out here, um, uh, but there's an incredible resilience that you see when things do get like this. And, and that's what's been amazing to me is watching that community stand up for itself and stand up for each other as well. And it's been it's a bit unlike anything I've encountered before. Mm. And look, uh, you know, the closer you get to Sydney, the, the easier it is for me to tune a digital radio in a way that means I can wake up in the morning and hear Nick just talking about stuff, which is always fun. Oh, look, I'm glad you're listening, and uh, anyone else <laughs> should feel free to point a digital radio towards ABC Western Plains, or if you are in the Dubbo area, 95.9. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of uh, an outline of how this show is going to work, I figured I've put in the notes the idea that here near the top of the show, we'll do a little loose end section where we do follow up on things that might come up, given our chat on any given week. Um there's a lot of you know. There's a lot of times when you sort of just talk about stuff and then you move on. Whereas I think it'd be nice to you know have that window where you go that thing we were talking about. It actually kept doing more things, which is kind of part of <laughs> real life, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what you want. And you know, this goes back to something you and I used to try and do a bit with um, CNET is revisiting old technology or revisiting yeah. games uh, well after the the initial uh, first blush of excitement had worn off, you know, when everyone was talking about a particular product or a particular game, were they still doing that in two weeks, three weeks? Were people still mired in it a month later? That's when technology or gaming or any kind of pop culture gets interesting to me, the longevity. Look, and that's a perfect reminder as well where I remember – uh, as someone who, you know, again, we're all, we're in the weeds of tech when you're really working on that, those kinds of big sites with the daily news cycle. And I, I remembered when I went shopping for a car again at one point and it completely reminded me that when we review tech, we're so often comparing it 
uh, you know, year over year, all of this phone stuff, which is, you know, we're in the thick of some of that again off the back of new iPhones and we've got new Pixel phones coming really soon. Um, that issue, like it's, it's the wrong way to review stuff in terms of how people actually use it and in terms of how people actually upgrade it. And when I was shopping for a car, you know, I read a whole bunch of car reviews and they're like talking about all these, like the little differences in acceleration and, <laughs> and the things and the stuff. Um, and then I just get in any new car, given that my other car was like 15 years old. And I'm just like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like every car I'm sitting in now is incredible. Why, why would anybody complain about any of this? <laughs> oh, look, and, yeah. I feel the same way now that I'm not sort of, um, on the cutting edge of phones, particularly. I see other people and you mentioned the new pixels. I'm a bit obsessed with them because I'm using a much older phone. I don't upgrade, uh, every six weeks. How often we were doing it, it was crazy for a while there. Yeah. Um, and I am seeing some of the stuff that's coming through and thinking that is absolutely sublime. But you're right. It's not how people use technology. They don't upgrade every single time something new comes out. You might skip a couple of generations. And I think it was, um, I, I think it was easy to lose the perspective on that. Yeah. And, you know, like right now I keep talking about the idea, like the whole iPhone versus Android thing. I mean, not that we're getting into this as one of our topics for today, but the, that whole discussion, I think sometimes, you know, when people, oh, well, you, you know, you can get a much cheaper phone on Android and it's like absolutely hundred percent, but we're also so deep on this whole thing now that, you know, asking someone to do that is like saying, oh, and you need to learn a new language, you know? Um, so it's sort of hard to do some of that price comparison of iPhone versus Samsung and all that jazz. But within the Android ecosystem, I'm like, man, like the Pixel 3a, when that came out earlier in the year and was roughly 500 bucks ish, um, for something that gave you like one of the best cameras around and one of the, they just changed some of the materials it was made of. So I think the, the back went back to being plastic instead of aluminium and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, this is, this is incredible. And finally, there is, you know, that idea that, you know, you can, you can buy something that is technically in the current version of things a <laughs> mid-range price, um, but you are you know not dumbing things down in any way. So it's a it's a good time, and yeah, hopefully when we're diving into some of this stuff when it comes up, uh, that yeah, that this is more of that attitude that we want to bring to it is um, what's the real way we people should use these things or do use these things rather than the way that sometimes. We can get lost in the weeds when you, um, yeah, are at that reviewing coalface and you know, neither of us are really on that reviewing coalface anymore. We're certainly Huzzah. not. Huzzah, indeed. Uh, weirdly, this is actually not a bad segue for what you wanted to chat about, uh, Fallout 76, because yes. that's been out for a while and it was one of those games that took people a little while to adjust to, but people are still playing it and they're doing something, from my perspective, bloody fascinating. Yeah, I, look... Fallout 76, absolutely one of those ideas that when it launched, you, like, you know, I was definitely turned off. I'm like, that's not what I want from Fallout. I want an incredible single-player campaign, all of that jazz. Um, and so, yeah, clearly it rubbed a lot of traditional Fallout fans wrong. Others embraced it. It, you know, it had that troubled kind of launch window as well where stuff just was undercooked. Um, and now it's, yeah, it's clearly slowly been maturing for what it is. And I think this story is just so 
beautiful in that way that it now makes me feel like, okay, I think I'm, I'm allowed to just appreciate it for what it has become rather than what it was not being in terms of, you know, our expectations of what the next Fallout game was meant to be. So uh, there's a story on Polygon, which is talking about this whole um, fan-based activity that's taking place, where basically there is a trial taking place in the game against uh, a guy who runs a raiding uh, community, Guild, whatever we got, factions. Faction, faction. Yeah. And so, again, within the game, because they focus so much not only on multiplayer, but the idea that it was a very open concept and taking what was some of the sort of stuff of Fallout 4 where you could build your own bases and things, applying that into a really, um, you know, open world multiplayer environment, suddenly we have this situation where you've had different people deciding what kind of, uh, person are they wanting to role play in the wasteland and so you will get literally like cannibal factions and bounty hunter no. factions and people who are creating quests to send other people out on and in this case there's this raiding group that uh, this other particular role play group that calls itself fallout 5.0 is holding a public event because they basically are this sort of like, you know, uh, white knight, you know, first responder group that goes out and helps people out. Um, and they found this raiders camp and the group is called the Vultures. And they are like known to be one of the really kind of nasty factions um, within the game. They found them, they took down their base and then they have actually sort of captured the leader and take, who's known as Warlord. Uh, funnily enough, a very Mad Max vibe. <laughs> and taking him prisoner, and now they want to, you know, they didn't just kill him. They've, they want to hold this kind of community event to let people decide and vote on what exactly is going to happen um, next. And it's just blowing my mind because I'm getting so many of the feels that I have for EVE Online, which is this kind of massive space uh, multiplayer online game. And again, it's sort of really loose gameplay in terms of how much has been fed into it in terms of quests and all those kinds of things that players can do. But instead, you then hear these wild emergent stories that come out of it of, you know, corporations kind of infiltrating other corporations. And there's like a whole two year sting that takes place and then they steal all the other group's money and like all this sort of stuff. And you're like, that's nuts. I don't have time to get into it, but I want to hear these stories because they are nuts and awesome. And here it's like, oh my God, this stuff is starting to happen in Fallout 76. So I'm completely in love with this story. And yeah, I now I it's instantly flipped how I feel about this game. I am now interested to play it. Because uh, i, I got to admit, like you, I was like, it's not the Fallout I want. And I'm really picky about my Fallout. It is one of my favourite series. Um, but I'm really curious now, and, and you said the word, and I was going to avoid it myself, but is this what we call emergent gameplay? Look, yeah, I completely feel that it is, that they've created the environment where people are telling their own stories inside this game. And that is, you know, and the idea that, you know, this group, uh, you know, and I'll make sure I link up the the fallout 5.0 website um in the show notes that like they are offering quests and they are creating all these things themselves in the game for other players 
to engage with. I mean, it's a hundred percent that whole idea of, you know, they have made a playground and now there is a community forming that is really turning it into their own space to create gameplay. And a really important example of what a community can mean for a game that might not have flipped everyone's switches first go round, but you do wait for that community build up and that's when the environment is good. Yeah. And, and I think the other kind of cool part is, um, just that, that this is a great time to get back into that game or go, go into it for the first time because they have started to put some more of those kinds of, um, you know, pre-made gameplay experiences into the game as well. They're starting to add NPC because, you know, at first it was literally zero NPC. That was the it idea, was, wasn't it? Everyone must yeah. be a robot or a player. Yeah. Was that and it? So it was so, yeah, yeah, it was just, it really just, it, it, it was too much to comprehend at the time for me, honestly. It was just like, no, this isn't, this isn't Fallout. I don't know what to do about it. Oh, and, yeah. And so I think that, that a lot of those sorts of features are starting to come back into the game at this point where the community has started to also add its own whole ecosystem of activities. I think you've got me inspired. I am going to go and hunt and see if it's on sale on one of the, um, one of the many, many digital marketplaces and maybe grab myself a copy. Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm actually, it's, it's one of those weird ones as well where I'm actually not sure if I have a feeling that it's only available on Bethesda's own launcher because everybody has a launcher again. Nowadays. Of course. Who doesn't love a launcher? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and whether that then, of course, means, does that mean then they just never put it on sale because they're like, well, we're not really competing with the other marketplace anymore. So, you know, come to our launcher and then we'll pretend you've never seen that other games are on sale right now. <laughs> I Surely it's got to be on oh, Maybe it's not. Okay, well, I'm going to have to investigate this yep. all further down the track. Um, but, yeah, so you um, definitely added into this whole thing that you want to make sure, you know, it's one thing to talk about violent wasteland raiders <laughs> taking over uh, Appalachia, uh, it's another thing to talk about a very cute little goose that is uh, as mean as all get out. I am just stunned by how popular Untitled Goose Game has become. I mean, could you, it is, it's Crossy Road all over again in the sense that people are just obsessed with it and I am loving the mainstream appeal that it's had. I'm right now literally looking at a Time article about Untitled Goose Game, everyone's tapping into their horrible side thanks to the consequence-free Untitled Goose Game. What a headline. That's brilliant. <laughs> I Look, and I, here's where we get a weird confession. I haven't played it yet. I am trying to, and I sound like someone's dad here, I'm trying to play the game I already have before I buy a new one. Thank you very yep. much. The uh, We have food at home, McDonald's drive through of video gaming. <laughs> right. um, and I am midway through Control and absolutely loving it, but I am dead keen to start on, on Untitled Goose Game because I remember when we first started seeing the trailers, I was like, I love the art. It's fascinating. Don't know where they're going with it. And where they went with it was something that was just a joyously simple gameplay that is still as complex as you want to make it. The joy of being, well, a, an unrepentant asshole of a goose, which is the only way gooses should be represented. Right. And courtesy of Dan Golding, apparently a score to die for. Yep. The score uh, is based on Debussy's Preludes, uh, which you discover when you watch the credits. Uh <laughs> It's just, oh, yeah, awesome. My, I watched, uh, so my daughter played 
through to the end last night uh, or yesterday afternoon into the evening. So also one of those nice things where it's, what, I think about 30 bucks on the Switch store. And, uh, yeah, you can just, you know, play it start to end in one nice, you know, extended sitting. And then if, and then it gives you plenty of extra challenges and things, uh, you know, off the back end of the main list of, of quests um, so that you can just keep running around and being a mean goose to a whole bunch of people in this beautiful little provincial village. But the cultural cachet it's now delivering as well. Blink182, giving a shout-out to it mid-concert. Uh-huh. Chrissy Teigen on Twitter talking about how much she's loving it. I mean, House House are losing their collective nana over the success, and they should be. They've developed something that has somehow really hit a bit of a zeitgeist. I also want to know which member of the team straight up said, we we need to keep the name as Untitled Goose Game because boy, that oh boy. just leaps out. It is exactly right. If it was just called Mean Goose or Village Goose or something like that, you wouldn't be as excited as Untitled Goose Game. Uh, and the other one you've seen, and you might have seen this yourself, uh, the copycats are appearing on the um, uh, various stores, Unnamed Goose Game, all these oh. terrible rip-offs. But if that's not a sign of success, I don't know what yeah. is. Hundred percent, and like, yeah, it's been awesome. Like, it is absolutely one of those games that you can watch someone else playing. You know, I, that's one of the pleasures I've had. Like, I haven't played it myself yet, but watched a whole bunch of, um, you know, like I said, but, well, both my kids have had a crack. But yeah, my daughter was the one that decided I'm gonna see out being this mean goose, um, and it's it, exactly as you said. I think the like the music is beautiful. The art style is just so pleasant. The way everybody is animated and reacts to the goose and like even just the running animation for the goose, I feel like is just, you know, it's just oh. so bang on for just wanting to waddle around endlessly. That center of gravity people. is incredible. I could watch that goose move all the time. I'm, I'm in love with the memes it's spawning as well, including the, the great combination of Control, which I'm playing now in The Goose, someone's photoshopped The Goose into the director's chair at the Federal Bureau of Control. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm really happy with that. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think I've, I've seen, yeah, there was a tr- Twitter thread talking about what else, yeah, people want The Goose put into. Um, and yeah, and you know, I, I am so remembering all the cool, funny things that people said about it. Um, but I'm sure if you search goose, <laughs> if you just literally search goose right now on Twitter, um, you, you know, you will blow up a, th- a thread right there because everybody, it is, you know, how nice would it be if you've made just that like cute indie game and literally everybody in the world is, is going nuts for it. You'd have to feel proud of it and a great Australian success story. I've, I've been trying to think of a segue about the goose being an asshole and esports match fixing, but I can't bring one together. So do we just want to talk about esports match fixing? Yeah, speaking of <laughs> assholes um, ruining things. Um, yeah, no, so uh, it, I've written a couple of stories about this in recent weeks and, uh, yeah, I just I thought it would be good to talk about it here. The, there is, here in Australia, uh it was an incident that apparently happened back in February, but it's been sort of investigated over recent months. And then in August, there were a series of arrests related to some uh, mat- potential match fixing, alleged match fixing uh, that took place in uh, what we now know was CSGO, Counter-Strike, um, in a kind of semi-pro or like 
high-level amateur-grade um, tournament series uh, that is run by ESL called uh, E. I don't know if you meant to pronounce this ESEA, um, but it's also it's like this global competition is sponsored by Mountain Dew. Um, so, you know, there's like branding involved. It's like, it's not rank amateur, but it is not at the tier where like the, the actual pro, uh, regularly paid teams are like in the thick of earning their money, you know, so definitely in that space where there's plenty of people who are playing mostly for fun and, that door is wide open if betting is available uh-huh. for people to be convinced that, hey, you know, why not just do something that means you're going to help reduce your ability to win, which is, of course, always that spin, right? It's like, yeah, like, we're not asking you to lose-lose. We're just asking you to not try quite so hard. Oh, this is fascinating to me because... Uh... You know, there's still a sense when we talk about esports to not take it entirely seriously. Like, I, I know we do, but you think, oh, match fixing on a video game, what are you on about? But this is a really big deal. Yeah, and and it is funny. I've cracked the joke more than once when this story was first coming out where it's like, oh, you you don't think esports are sports? Well, there's match fixing. <laughs> <laughs> and do you believe us now? Um, and the really big thing that kind of gets me about this was partly in the way that some of the coverage was framed. Um, I know when it happened, talking to, you know, it happened, the arrest happened just before Melbourne Esports Open. And so I was down in Melbourne uh, a couple of days after this was all sort of breaking news. Just checking, and, this is late August? Is this yeah, what we're talking about? So this yeah, is late August. And talking to a bunch of people just behind the scenes, you know, but senior people of the industry, everyone was like, they're not actually telling us. Like, at first, it was that horrible moment where everyone is just feeling tarred by this broad brush of, like, people have been arrested for esports match fixing. Well, and like, well, what else do you have to say about it? No, that's all we have to say at this time. That's all we have to say. And... And like literally people who are involved with some of the major organizations behind the scenes were like, we're, you know, we're asking that if they need our help, we're, we're here to help, but we just are still waiting to find out exactly what's going on. Um, so there was that kind of horrible side of that broad brushing of the entire ecosystem. Cause of course, you know, it's, it's like in sport, you would say, ah, oh, there are, like, and there was a situation last year, a number of people have pointed this out to me, um, that there was a whole bunch of match fixing issues in tennis here in Australia at kind of those lower divisions of, you know, but people trying to get into that sort of pro tier and all that jazz, a whole bunch of match fixing, match fixing, match fixing, match fixing issues. Uh, and, but literally you say the word tennis, esports isn't one sport, it is 50 different sports, you know. Uh, and so if it had happened in AFL, you would say the word AFL and every other sport would be like, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't on our oh, turn. Oh, yeah, I get what you're getting at. And that is so, actually yeah. really interesting because we yeah, still don't almost... have a good lexicon for divvying up esports. We still think of it as this weirdly, you know, unifying concept. But you're right, there's a huge variety of sports. Yeah. And so that was kind of one of those initial things that jumped out. And then um, off the back of that was uh, the first people to basically, you know, reveal that, you know, the, more to the story um, was a 730 
uh, episode of 7.30, I think... Either early last, what week is this? Today's Tuesday. <laughs> uh, it was last week. And they, uh, yeah, and they sort of talked to the Victorian Police Commissioner and they, you know, and there was a lot of really interesting sort of details, um, in the story. But then the online story, uh, you know, there was kind of the, you know, the few minute package for, for 7.30. And then there was an accompanying story online. And it wore, it really, the thing that really sort of got me was, there were so many references to this idea that like, but you know, esports can lead to corruption Ooh. in that way that you're like, I mean, you wouldn't just broadly say, you know, and people playing tennis could end up <laughs> being corrupted. It's still got that narrative tinge of, well, we're still not sure whether video games are good for you or not. Now we're worried they might be illegally bad for you. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> and so that was kind of a real weird out too. And then there was even one extra bomb that they dropped, or like literally it was like as an aside in this print article, um, was the fact that apparently, oh, and the commissioner has mentioned that there are further in- investigations going on, you know, extending outside of this uh, counter-strike sort of situation, uh, and uh, including the fact that a, uh, a an owner of a team in Australia's Overwatch Contenders League uh, may actually have ties to organised crime. That you want that to be more than an aside, that's the whole story. Because suddenly you're like, did... Did these journalists not realise there are literally only like six teams in the Australian League, um, and you know multiples of those teams are part of sporting organisations, <laughs> and therefore are probably easy to count out. And suddenly you're left with just like two or three, where you're like, oh, re- really? One of one of these is being accused of uh, being you know having links to organised crime. Um, so like really, I, I mean, and it's probably one of those other things, right? That comes back to that issue of a lot of news organizations don't have specialists who know tech and games all that well anymore. And then serious stories come up and you're like, there was no one they could really cross check with to go, whoa, you are basically just naming somebody right now. Um, I think the other yeah. thing is tech and sports. I mean, it's uh, sorry, tech and sports, uh, tech and games is so generalized now that you actually need an expert esports journalist to be able to make sense of this. And that's why I'm here. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no look, it, it's just, there were so many little elements because in the end, and like you sort of said earlier, that this is a really, really big story and it is important. And yeah, the thing that I'm just like, well, can we just ban betting from taking place? You know, they just shouldn't be able to run a market based on, uh, you know, low grade esports competitions in the same way that, you know, and I did some digging around on, I think it was Sportsbet who was mentioned as being the organization that flagged that some, you know, anomalous betting patterns were noticed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and yeah, I'm like, why is it that the betting company gets this free pass to just run a book based on any sport that they happen to say, oh, there's enough people willing to put a bet on that. So we'll run a book on it. Uh, versus the idea that you're like, but those people who play that thing aren't very professional and the team size is small enough that it can be easily corrupted by one person or two people, you know, throwing in a game and that's going to make it a lot more obvious. All those kinds of issues um, that, yeah, if you turned around and said like, oh, um, 
uh, like New South Wales regional level basketball competitions now are available on Sportsbet. Um, yeah, put put a bet on your mates uh, who are playing this weekend, and you know that one of them is having a bit of knee trouble this week. But you know, are you a proud dad? Under sevens now paying out three to four. You know, it's like, it just sounds awful. I mean, suddenly the reason to shout from the sideline gets a lot more. <laughs> yeah, look, I. I I imagine we're going to see a lot more regulation, but um, you know, if this what it if this is what it takes for people to start taking esports seriously, maybe it needed to happen. Yeah, I have no problem with the fact that in the end, um, you know, and I think the other thing is just fundamentally people getting caught in this way. It's horrible for those people because in the end, there is such you know, yep, the old slippery slope thing of they've you know they've made a couple of bad decisions. Um, actually, uh. Uh, Alex Walker over at Kotaku, he even wrote, you know, a bit of a piece about it. And in the comments, I noticed, um, he made a, you know, just a great throwaway, or it might have been on Twitter that he made a great throwaway about the fact that it's like, oh, all the, you know, the, um, part of the ABC story was pointing out the kinds of comments that were being made by people watching the match live were, you know, talking about, oh, somebody's throwing here and all this. <laughs> you know, and Alex again is more of an expert is like, People in chat say that all the time. <laughs> it's like someone having a bad match and, yeah, instantly people, yeah, throwing, throwing. <laughs> Maybe it is really genuinely about ethics in esports. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I, I want to stop that one there before we go into it. Hey, PAX is coming up very, very shortly and I uh, had to miss last year. I am super excited to be back this year. You are going to be there as well, I understand it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm super excited for, and I do apologize because this is a bit of a plug for myself as well. I'm going to be playing Vampire the Masquerade. I'm going to be doing that on the Sunday uh, in a big session that is actually being done as a prelude to the uh, Seattle by night campaign that Penny Arcade do. Uh, We're going to be doing Melbourne by night, but I have not played Vampire in... Look, I don't even want to think when. Uh, It's been (laughs) at least 15 years that I've tabletopped it. Did you play I did. I I played Vampire was probably that that big first grown-up game in inverted commas <laughs> that yeah we shifted to from D&D amongst my mates when we we're probably, you know, 16, 17 um and you sort of think, oh, well, let's start telling some real stories. Um but it was brilliant for doing exactly that and really exploring cool themes that were so much more than just yeah you know, running into a dungeon and kill some stuff. Um so we did play a couple of sort of like longish running campaigns. And then I did play a really good uh, long running vampire dark ages campaign uh, at one point. It was so much fun, but it is, you know, the, the, um, the vampire system and that whole, I guess, cause there was a bit of an ecosystem as well of uh, vampire and werewolf and mage and all that stuff. And I've heard actually that um, a lot of those, I think a bit, a new, uh, new versions of those are in the works, um, you know, of, again, bringing all of those sorts of things back. But Vampire was absolutely such a great system and just the different factions and and really, really so much, so much cool storytelling attached to it. 
It, look, it arrived uh, when I was at university just about on the cusp of becoming a, a fully-fledged goth, and it was just the perfect game to arrive at oh, that yes. time. I just had so much fun with it and, of course, played yeah, Toriadors and Tremere because they were the really serious black-wearing velvet cape uh, kind of group. That's what I wanted to play then. I did play a little bit of Dark Ages as well. That was um, a very long-running campaign with a, a bunch of friends of mine, uh, including David Hollingworth, who, of course, uh, would be well-known to the gaming community as well uh we had a blast with that i mean that was a really good game i'm super excited to get back and see what they've done for it but it's actually being done as a bit of a promo for vampire the masquerade bloodlines 2 now do you remember from the original bloodlines from 2004 yes. the video game it's it- funny when you wrote that in the notes i'm like is that is that's the old one or because there've been one or two other vampire games that have come out along the way that I always got confused with that game. No. Um so yeah that's oh that's great. So the, I didn't realize that there is a you know a sequel actually on the way. A sequel is on the way. It does look absolutely incredible to me and I am biased with this because I just want it to be good as well. I'm not going to lie here. Um Bloodlines was amazing and I came to it too late unfortunately. I didn't play it when it came out. I played it much later and could not quite get past the graphics and how they looked to modern eyeballs. I wish I'd played it when it came out because it was made by Troika who did Arcanum, which was one of those games I just absolutely sank so much time into. Steampunk magic. I had a half-orc with a top hat that would magnetically repel bullets. It was just absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Um, And people who had played a lot of the tabletop did really enjoy Bloodlines. It was one of those things that they did a very good job of translating it into a video game. And I'm super excited to see what's going to happen with Bloodlines too. Yeah, that is... um... I'm, I mean, yeah, this does kind of feed in nicely to where I want to go next, which is just the whole, just the whole thing of really lately I've been enjoying being back into um, the D and D and the whole sort of role playing ecosystem in a way. Oh, I have said ecosystem way too many times. Yeah, well, what else are we going to say? I mean, emergent gameplay four more times. I mean, I'm willing to give it a go if you are. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Um, yeah, I just being back in a D and D. So. Earlier in the year, like we'd already started, um, so what? Fifth edition has been around now for a few years. Um, it has absolutely been a huge boom moment for D and D itself. You know, kind of dragging itself out of, you know, a, a weaker patch during fourth edition where it kind of I think tried too hard to respond to what was going on in video games, and very you know, detrimentally so, I think. Yeah, yeah, things like, you know, trying to create role concepts like, okay, you're a tank and you're a DPS and those kinds of things in a way that video games, you know, yes, it makes lots of sense. Um, But if I'm sitting around the table having fun with my friends, do I really want such clear definitions attached to everything? So um, I don't know if you remember that off the back of that sort of, you know, downturn, they did a whole um, D&D Next kind of beta test, you oh, know, and that was when... Yeah, they, I do remember D&D Next. Oh, God, yeah. wow. So they put out kind of, you know, the, like, early sets of rules. They were like, here's all these little bits and pieces. Give us your feedback. What do you want? We want D&D to go back to its roots. Um, and I think 5th Edition has done such a good job on doing exactly that of, you know, giving you, like, keeping the core rules kind of quite simple, uh, adding... Other concepts that have been, you know, added in later sort of versions, like the whole idea now of at will spell casting, which means, you know, that 
the classic issue if you wanted to be a wizard was I have two spells today. I'll, I'll go cast, lie down. <laughs> yeah, I have cast my magic missile. Now I need to hide up the back and never get hit and I can't help. Sorry. So, you know, they've improved the sort of the fantasy law by giving you, yeah, here's your go-to spell that you can use every single turn and just, you know, pump out those cool things. Um, all these sorts of movements. But then I think, yeah, they've also really found this great rhythm of instead of just releasing modules, they now release these sort of campaign books that it's it's purely that idea that every book now is like, yep, you start at level one in this book and you go through to level anywhere from level 10 to level 15 or something like that, and you go on this kind of epic journey. But that, that book is also, even if you don't want to play the campaign, it is a setting book and gives you all the info you need to... You know, run any adventure you like in, you know, Waterdeep or in Baldur's Gate huh. or in, or literally in Hell, which is the latest book that's just come out, Descent into Avernus. And, and it's, you know, it just details the first layer of Hell and, and, you know, and it's a campaign for, you know, first level characters. And, you know, so there's just this cool epic thing of going to Baldur's Gate and then, Shortly thereafter, while you're still quite low level, getting sucked into hell and having to deal with that. Um, and so, yeah, just all the different books, I think, are such a good job because, I, yeah, I just love that idea of being able to make story at the heart of each book release. And I've been lucky enough sort of over the last few months that I've gotten to do a bunch of interviews with some of the uh, D&D folks, and you can sort of find some of those over on the Game Table podcast. But just for me inside my own family here, you know, my kids are getting to this just awesome age, you know, uh, 11 and 13, where we can have these great family role-playing sessions and, and they are great <laughs> at playing. <laughs> um, you know, I think that nice, I think it's that nice thing as well of, you know, we've started young enough where they're not feeling too, you know, teenage. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to pretend to be some other character in front of my parents. Uh, and instead, you know, we're getting this great moment where, where that whole improv yes and vibe is working so well at the table together that, you know, we're just having a total blast. Um, so yeah, completely, completely loving what's been going on at D and D lately. I don't know if you've managed to play lately or I haven't. Look, my last major campaign, uh, well, it was third edition and it was so long ago that, and I did promise, uh, all the people I played with that we'd never admit this in public. So I do apologize to everyone, including once again, David Hollingworth. Uh, this was so long ago that my, Pervasive memory of when 9-11 happened was that it was when Robbie won the joust. Um, and that is terrifying that that is my memory of 9-11 was I was actually playing D&D when it was all going down. Uh, that's how long ago this campaign was. So we'll just hurriedly move on from there. Wow. I think, a, yeah, that is a while back. I think what fourth edition missed was that there is a joy in playing an incompetent character if you want yes. to role play that. And fourth never let you. That, look, that is actually such a good way to think about it. We had a situation recently, so I'm also playing in a um, in a campaign at a local store, and one of the things that happened there was, you know, a wild mage uh, under the uh, fifth edition rules, you can play a sorcerer, and they can have wild magic as you know one of their sort of features, and uh, if they roll a natural one while trying to cast a spell, then they have to roll on a wild magic table for an effect. Oof. And sometimes it can be a really cool thing that happens. At 
the store recently, uh, what happened to our group of second level characters was that a fireball was cast centered on the guy who was accidentally casting his wild magic. Oh, badly. no. And literally, yeah, four out of six people in the party died. Um, later he sort of said, oh, I misread the table and actually it was, it, it was a different effect. And he was kind of feeling a bit, you know, like disappointed that, that, and most of us all actually turned around and went, but what a cool story we just got instead, right? <laughs> it's like, we could have kept fighting the big thing and hack, 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 and maybe we'd eventually have killed it. Or we could just have this epic mistake happen and everyone walks away with an awesome story of what just happened tonight. And I, yeah, I think that was that thing that, yeah, even he was like, actually, yeah. I think that is absolutely amazing. And uh, look, you know, just while I'm in plug mode, um, I'm actually going to be on the great debate at PAX as well, which is Saturday from 1pm. And the topic is the amount of D&D nowadays is too damn high. <laughs> which side are you on? I'm going to keep that one a secret. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep that one a secret. You'll have to go. So like, I might even dress up for this one. There is never enough. Never <laughs> enough. Um, the other thing I've really been loving, um, not to sort of, you know, go too far down the rabbit hole, but I think the positivity of playing together around a table in an RPG is something that I had completely, you know, that just, just social media, the internet, it's not, it's not the place we dreamed it was going to be in the 90s. No, right? it's nothing like what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. And so having been playing and, you know, I did even get to go like, you know, it was a you know, big assist from D&D that they sent me over to go to this D&D live event a few, like back in May. It's quite a, quite a while back, but it was when Descent into Avernus was first being announced. Um, I got to go to an event in LA and... And they had a bunch of the, like the actors there who are involved with some of the different live play campaigns online. Um, but just the conversations about sort of their experience with the fan communities for, for D and D and their campaigns and, um, and just everybody talking about what it, what it's like to kind of put the devices away and sit around a table and you know, put the devices away, which also means get out your iPad because, um, the D&D Beyond character sheet system is now brilliant uh, and it's so much better than having a piece of paper in front of you where you don't remember what your stats are and what your spells do and instead you just tap a thing and, it, yeah, hey, that's what your spell does. Thank God. Didn't waste half an hour finding that weird spell effect I'd forgotten about. Um, so that, you know, digital tools are now embraced into the system so nicely um, but just, yeah, the, it is warm and fuzzy to get to just sit with other people and play together in this way. It's great. I think you've, you, you're inspiring me. I am going to have to try and find a group somewhere around Dubbo and uh, maybe get into a little bit of D&D, make that investment into all the rule books all over again. And there's something uh, a lot of fun about cracking a brand new rule book, going through all those illustrations, reading all the colour pieces. I actually really miss it. Yeah, and I, I absolutely feel like every time you, yeah, you, like, I mean, well, look, here's the other really cool thing that they've been doing is, a really great support system for local stores. So, you know, you can just still order your, you know, your books off Amazon or wherever. And for a, for quite a while, that was a threat to local stores in that, you know, well, yeah, much cheaper to order from Amazon or Book Depository or wherever rather than buying a more expensive version. Whereas it's like, well, you know, the local shop has to keep the lights on and all those kinds of issues. Um, but now they do 
are special edition covers that are only available in game stores. Oh. And you can, you can pre-order that, but they have, you know, special artists do an alternate cover that is always dead sexy and just, yeah, again, just such a nice way to remember that this is about, this is a physical game in a physical space and they should support the kinds of stores that create those spaces if people don't know other people as well. So like just so many of these little kind of levers that they've been shifting around that I think, yeah, has been really, really helpful. And I, I actually wrote this article, um, shortly after uh, the D&D live event. So probably back in, I guess I wrote it in June. Um, today it has appeared in Tuesday's Australian financial review, um, about, <laughs> you know, an interview with the, the heads of uh, D&D and sort of the things that are going on around that. Um, so that's just a lucky coincidence that today was the day that that was in the paper, but, um, I'll put the link in the show notes uh, online to that sort of write up. Cause it was looking at how they've really managed to sort of fix a lot of things. Um, but yeah, at the same time, uh, AFR, it's behind a paywall, but most people know how to use a link to get to read a story, even if you're not a subscriber. Or most you could subscribe. Know. You could subscribe and if you want to. Hell yes. Hell yes. You subscribe indeed. just for my story. Apparently they even notice these days what, what article triggers somebody to subscribe. So you would be helping promote the fact that the <laughs> AFR should write more stories about Dungeons and Dragons. They absolutely should. <laughs> um, look, I wanted to wrap up chatting about the brand new Neil Stevenson book. It is called Fall or Dodge in Hell. But I've realized that there's very little I can say about it because I want people to read it and have it unfold properly. Uh, but I will say this. Are you a Neil Stevenson fan? Have you read... A reasonable I amount. am, and my sort of comment off the back of this was going to be the fact that I desperately need to catch up on the Baroque cycle. I am so far behind on Neil Stevenson books, and every time I read one, I adore it. I do always. I have trouble probably getting to 30 pages in because the density of his work, just he just goes for it right from the start, and you're like, I'm lost, I'm, I'm lost. And then suddenly you realise, oh, I mean, I am so in and I can't put this down anymore. He, he uh, has what Will, what Will Self would have called a toxic prolixity, but I kind of enjoy <laughs> it. You do need to build up that kind of inoculation against it. Fall wraps up Cryptonomicon, it wraps up the Baroque cycle, and it wrapped up, wraps up Reamed. And it oh is incredible to see this all happen. It almost in places plays out like a Coen Brothers film of everything coming together last minute in a, in a weird way. I'm really enjoying it. I have seen a lot of people I respect who are not enjoying it. And they say that it's actually some of Stevenson's worst excesses on the page. I can kind of see what they mean. But I'm loving it just for the fact that I'm seeing these characters wrap up. And it is, uh, it is a breakneck pace when it comes to the plotting and the movement. And um, I'm going to say, if you've read a bit of Stevenson, if you're not already sick of him, I'd heartily recommend it. That sounds great. I, uh, yeah, that, I mean, and that's the trigger I needed really to get on with catching up on a few of those other books that I haven't read yet. So... Um, brilliant. Well, you know, if we're doing I'll... this once a week, you've got seven days to read the Baroque cycle. I mean, it's only around, what, 4,000 pages. <laughs> Between the, the trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just crack I'll it. Just put, I'll just jot that into the loose ends <laughs> segment for a... <laughs> um, look, all right. So normally, and if and this is, this is where you, dear listener, can uh, send us a message uh, through whatever channels you like. I, I feel like 
sometimes I do think about the idea of setting up one of those Skype numbers where, you know, someone can leave you a voice message. Um, maybe we could mess around that at some point. But for now, um, you know, you can send us things via Twitter. There is the at Byteside Twitter account, at B-Y-T-E-S-I-D-E. Uh, you can reach me at at Seamus. Uh, you can reach Nick at at Dr. Underscore Nick, D-R underscore Nick. Find me. <laughs> and... Um, uh, what are, where else should people try to find things? I don't know. If you're at PAX, come up and say good day to us. Yes. Hell yes. I, I I actually I'd said this before I went down to Melbourne Esports Open is that, you know, I you know, I am well practiced at going on TV and talking about tech and games and nerd things. I'm well practiced at standing up in front of a room to talk about these sorts of things. I but that doesn't mean I'm not an awkward introvert when I walk into a bar full of other nerds that I know are there <laughs> caring about the same stuff, but I don't know them very well and and I have to find a way to break into a conversation and say hello. So before I went down to Melbourne Esports Open, uh, or actually I think it was just after I arrived, I sent a tweet saying, if you see me around, please come and say hello because I'm I'm just fine the networking thing so awkward. And, and it was brilliant in that actually a couple of people did straight up come and say hi. And I was like, thank you so much. Cause I love chatting to people. I just breaking that barrier of going, this person's about to reject me, aren't they? Because I'm like, I'm really a terrible human who deserves rejection. It always sits there and right there in the bad gland of the brain <laughs> well forget the bad gland of the brain and and do come and say hi to us and and i'll say it for this for me i um i spend so much of my time behind a microphone in a room talking to myself it's just a delight to be able to make eye contact with the person i'm chatting to so do come and say hi <laughs> and look and that'll be nice for us too <laughs> um i think you know much as we're recording this remotely um yeah and i absolutely Look forward to doing this on a very regular basis with you, Nick, because, uh, yeah, I don't have uh, much, much as you live in Dubbo. I live in Barrel. I don't have many local nerd friends. Um, <laughs> and this is a great way to have a brain dump about just cool stuff that I've been looking at lately. Likewise. And I look forward to the next one. So, yes, thank you if you've tuned into our very first bite side and please uh this will be on whatever your podcast app of choice is i'm not going to do this regularly but for the first couple i'll point out that whole thing that particularly during the early days of a podcast getting ratings and things is a big help for how apple's algorithm works apparently you basically have about the first three weeks where it will decide whether or not your podcast is worth highlighting or not according to its algorithms no pressure <laughs> but thanks everybody for tuning in thank you nick pleasure uh, and yeah we'll catch you again next time